The following recording is from the Parramatta Christian Church Pulpit Series. These sermons are freely available at pcc.org.au. Welcome to church on your last 11 a.m. for uh, 2018. I'm a year ahead of myself. I hope you're all doing well. For those who don't know me, my name is Andrew, and as I said in the earlier service, if you do know me, I'm really sorry. Um, Sorry. Um, Something, funny things happen every now and then in church. Uh, We were just eyeballing each other, I don't know if you could see. Uh, Vera kind of half preached my message this morning, so the good news is we're going to dismiss the meeting right now. (laughs) No, I'm joking, I can't do that can't do that, but that's good. I'm really excited about that. I think God wants to say a thing or two to us today. Who's with me on that? Amen. Amen. So if you have your Bible with you, I'm going to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 2. And when you find it, just keep your finger in there. I want to just share a couple of thoughts with you before we dig in. If you're visiting, we are in the midst of, drawing near the end, I think, of a series called Jesus More Than a Baby. And uh, as the name suggests, we're sort of just stepping a little bit beyond Christmas, Christmas obviously being the focus, but what is this baby actually here to do? What is baby Jesus? Why do we celebrate? So we started looking at Jesus being the Christ, the anointed Messiah, the one who was going to come and redeem his people. Then uh, Hillary looked at Jesus, the judge, not only the one who administers justice, but actually pays our penalty. Lewis last week looked at Jesus being Lord, being God, and how when we see Jesus, we actually see the Father. And so this morning, I want to continue on, and we're going to look at the concept of Jesus as Emperor. Jesus the Emperor. Now, that's a bit of a a strange one. It's not one you hear all the time. Um, I'm a bit of a music buff, and I'm thinking, Emperor, Empire, is this anywhere, you know, in terms of songs and whatnot? There's one song that I could find that actually has... Uh, I won't sing it for you, but there's one song I can think of. It's called Sing We the King. And the words go like this. Sing we the King who is coming to reign. Glory to Jesus, the Lamb that was slain. Life and salvation his empire shall bring. That's the only one I know. So if you're keen to write another one, let me know. But that's that's all I've got. Um, It's not something we talk about. But this morning, I want to just share some thoughts about two emperors, actually. That's one of them, obviously. Jesus, I've kind of given that away. Um, but we'll, we'll, as we go through, we'll talk about that. As the first Advent was coming on board, and if you don't know, Luke 2 is all about that first Christmas night. As Advent was coming on, as Jesus was coming, let's just step back into the scene. What was going on? Israel was occupied. They'd had a lot of people occupy them over time. This particular time, it was the Romans. The Romans were in charge. And the Jews were longing for some Messiah figure to come along. They'd seen all sorts of scriptures through the Old Testament. Out of Bethlehem, one will arise that will bring peace to the earth, it says in Micah. Psalm 2 says he will rule the nations with an iron scepter. And all through Isaiah, we have prophecy after prophecy. Um, you, know, you know, for unto us a child is born, the government will rest on his shoulder. We know these verses. And they were waiting for some kind of warrior Jesus, I think. There was a you're familiar with the term expectation versus reality in our social media age? I think we certainly are. Um, and you see these crazy pictures all the time on the web where uh, you kind of get this is what you want and this is the result. I think all of us can relate to the Santa photo, whether you've got kids or you were a kid. Um, just just one back for a sec. And obviously you've got the, uh, the, the tourist trap type thing, you know, pushing up the leaning tower and 
the right-hand side, they're nowhere near it, but, you know, that's what happens. I had a bit of an expectation versus reality episode in my life a few years ago. Uh, my youngest, Bella, um, she's now four, but she was about to turn one. And my wife, Cheryl, thought, maybe we'll do something different for the invites. Let's do a cake smash photo. You, you're familiar with the cake smash? You get your little toddler, and there they are. There's a beautiful bouncing boy. And, you know, that's what we were hoping to capture. Break up the icing, smear it all over you, you know, a bit of fun. Well, Bella's quite destructive, so we thought this should be a lay down misere. This should be easy. Anyway, so we sat the cake in front of her. Mum made one full of icing, and my mum, and then Cheryl's taking photos, and she keeps taking photos, and nothing's really happening. Bella's just looking at it. She starts playing with the candle. There's a little one candle in the middle. She's looking at it, and I think I wasn't there, but I think things were getting a bit heated, and in the end, Bella just threw a wobbly, and that's, that's what we got. That'll be one for the 21st, I'm sure. Expectation versus reality. And I think there was something like this going on in the minds of a lot of the Jewish people. They were waiting, not for a cake smash, they were waiting for a Messiah to come and overthrow Caesar, come and just supplant uh, the, the ruling empire. They were waiting for some warrior Jesus, probably on horseback with a whip or whatever, and instead what they get is a nativity scene. They get, you know, and, and it's, it's, it's easy to see why they didn't believe this was the Messiah. Because although Jesus fulfilled those scriptures I talked about and so many more, it wasn't to their expectation. They were waiting on something a little different. But as we read, I'm going to pray that God speaks to us, as I believe he is already, about just what this emperor Jesus really has come to do. How is he the emperor? And how does that affect us? So I've said a fair bit. I'm going to invite you to turn back to Luke 2. Uh, Hopefully you've got it there ready. I told you to keep your finger there because you <laughs> had a few things to say, but let's, uh, let's read it now. So from verse 1, it says, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinus was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. Church, shall we pray? Father, this morning we thank you for this incredible arrival of your son. Lord, we thank you so much, Lord, that you didn't abandon your people. 
And Lord, this morning I pray we'll have a, Lord, as we have prayed for this whole series, that we would have a newfound appreciation, a newfound awe and love and, and worship of you, Jesus. Lord, you came as this humble babe, and Lord, we, we so often don't get past gentle Jesus, Lord. Help us even this morning to see that, yes, Christmas is wonderful, but there's so much why it's wonderful. There's so much that we've been liberated from. Lord God, would you just open our hearts this morning? You are speaking today, God. We pray that you will just give us ears to hear what you want to tell us. And God, as we leave this place, that we will leave challenged, Lord, that you have achieved so much, Lord. And and what you call for us, Lord, is just our all. You call out for us to leave it at your feet, Lord God. Lord, open our hearts this day, we pray. Amen. Amen. So, Jesus the Emperor. As I said in my introduction, I want to talk to you about two emperors today. Before I dive into that, I thought I'd share with you, uh, there was a bit of archaeology done. A stone was uncovered many years ago in Turkey called the Calendar Inscription of Prien. Try saying that five times really fast. This was a carving that was done just before Jesus was born. Now, we've got it up here, and uh, there's some very interesting words that are said. This person was going to make wars cease. He was going to be a saviour to the people. He is the son of God. His birth will change the calendar, will change the way we look at time. And his birth is the beginning of good news for the world. Now, how awesome is that? That is incredible. This stone carving would say that about somebody. Making wars to cease. The son of God is coming. Now, that should make us rejoice, but there's, there's just one little problem. This was actually not written about Jesus. This was written about a guy called Caesar Augustus, who we read in our reading, which we'll come back to in just a second. This man was considered to be the son of God. Now, I don't know about you, but my mind boggles at that. As a Westerner, I think, how can you even think that would be possible? But I guess in our time, the nearest thing I can think of is someone like Kim Jong-un, or one of these dictators who by force says to people, you will honor me, you will whatever, you know. Same kind of thing was going on. Let's not forget, this was a totalitarian society in Rome. It was political, it was religious, it was a way of life. We don't get that in the West, but there are places and countries where this is still the norm. So this Augustus, therefore, was the guy who was supposedly the son of God. His birth would change the calendar. He'd make wars cease, all this kind of thing. We look at that as Christians and we think, hang on a second, this sounds like Jesus. This is the thing that we believe and we know that Jesus has achieved. The gospel writers were not, this was not lost on them either, I believe. If you know, that, that passage the, in Mark 1 verse 1, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, I don't think that's an accident. Because they're saying the good news about Caesar. And he's like, hold on a sec. This is the real deal over here. Forget your emperor. Let's look to the Christ. Look to Jesus. In uh, Luke chapter 1, we also read that this Jesus was going to come from the line of David. Mary is visited by Gabriel and he says, don't worry, it's all good. It's all good. Uh, this is what's going to happen. He'll be from the line of David. He'll be the son of God. All the gospel writers are going on the front foot to tell us, hey, you Romans might think you've got this down pat. Let me tell you, there's a better God. There's a better Savior. There's a better one who will make peace happen. And it's in this environment of just 
Caesar worship, and as I said, totalitarian society that we see our Messiah born into. This, this just walled in on every side, and you can see why the church struggled in the early days, because this was an affront to Rome. And the gospel writers are essentially asking us this question. After all this, are you going to follow Caesar or are you going to follow Jesus? You have a choice. It's a very clear choice. We will come back to this question throughout this sermon. And also, I guess, what we might ask is, well, how does that apply to us? Caesar, Christ, where does, where does this fit in? Bear with me. In our reading, we read that Caesar Augustus declared that a, a census should take place. Now, this census was not your Roman Bureau of Statistics type of census. This was not, we're going to look through the empire and see if we need to build a new freeway or a new hospital, how many non-Latin-speaking background people there were. This wasn't that kind of thing. This was a census really for two reasons. He was trying to show his strength, the strength of the empire, and probably the more important, this was a budget measure. It's like, hey, we need to work out what tax we can get from the people how many people there are, how many taxpayers there are, what can we expect? That was really what it was all about. And so this most powerful man in the world, Augustus, commissions this census. And can you imagine this? The whole of the Roman world is suddenly turned upside down. You've got to go back to the birth of your father, the birthplace of your father. If this happened today, I'd have to go back to Brazil. And no doubt many of you would be overseas. But this whole thing, this, all this tumult, why? So two people can go from Nazareth to Bethlehem to fulfill prophecy after prophecy about Jesus. Stop and think about that. God moving heaven and earth just to ensure that lowly Bethlehem, little town of Bethlehem, how still we see the lie, little Bethlehem becomes the epicenter of the Christmas story, the epicenter of Advent. The self-proclaimed Son of God may have commissioned a census, but we know something else was going on. We know God was engineering circumstance. And so these two emperors, if you like, Caesar Augustus and Christ, both trying to lay claim to being the Son of God. I think we know the answer to who really is, but they're both having claim on this title. There's a clash of their titles. But secondly, there's a clash of styles. There's a clash of upbringings, a clash of backgrounds. We know that Augustus was born into privilege. I mean, come on, he's the son of God, right? I mean, supposedly, growing up in a palace that was probably built by the slaves, built by some lesser breeds. And you know what kings are like, kings and queens. They're sort of way, way, way up here, and the peasants are all the way down here, and, you know, never the twain shall meet. If you've ever come from a caste system, you'll know what that's like. You just, there's no bridging of that gap. But Jesus is a little different. Jesus didn't come from privilege. We know in the Word, it says he left all of his divine privileges aside just to come to us. But he wasn't born like us middle classes, whatever that means. He came as a peasant. He was born to a peasant girl and her husband-to-be. And then as if that's not enough, they have to leave their humble home in Nazareth, travel to Bethlehem for this census, as we talked about. And as if that's not enough, every hotel in town is full. It's like when you go for a drive and the no vacancy signs are up. Is, have you got room for me? No, sorry, I can't help you. They get to the end of the street, right down the very last place in Bethlehem. And the poor guy's like, I've got nothing, man, I'm full. Did you, did you not hear there was a census? Did you, you have no idea? And then he says, but wait, 
I do have some animals. They have a stable at the back. It's probably going to stink. You'll probably hear them lowing all night, but if, if you need it, it's there. Dude, she's going to have a baby any second. Just, just get her in there. It's fine. And poor little baby Jesus, born to peasants, is laid in a manger. Now, it's a beautiful photo. We love these photos, but have you ever thought about what that would have been like? What it must have smelt like? Sheep and God knows what else was in that stable. It's a feeding trough. There would have been also, anyway, all sorts of stuff going on there. But this manger is just the beginning, just this, this portrait of what Jesus was eventually going to be. Just a very telling photo of a self-sacrificing Christ, an emperor who is not cast and cast above his people, but one that walks among us, one that does life with us, one that simply has come to be one of us and to die in our place. From the, from the point of birth to the point of death, we see humility all the way through. We know later Jesus was asked about, where do you live? He's like, well, a fox has their hole, but I've got no place to rest my head. Earthly possessions didn't faze him. And see, the manger is giving us a bit of an insight into this future. And if you're in any doubt at the point of the manger, by the time we get to the cross, it is crystal clear. What is implied by the manger is confirmed by the cross. A humble God, a God who shows tremendous humility to die on our behalf. He had no reason to do that, but he loves us. He's come in love. He's come showing the compassion of God. Just as an aside, I spoke about Mark 1 before. Mark is bookended by things that should make every Roman citizen, and even us today, sit up and take notice. We talked about the beginning, the beginning of the gospel. By the end of it, in chapter 15, we see that Jesus has just died. And you know the story. The Roman centurion says, this man was the son of God. Now again, this stuff kind of just slides over our mind a little bit. That's a big call to make. And you ever stopped and thought, the very first person who actually understood Jesus was the Son of God was not a Jew, was not a disciple, it was a Roman, heathen. And yet here he is saying, no, this is, forget Caesar, this man is the Son of God. The title that's usually given to the emperors, he sees, no, this is the ultimate emperor. This is the ultimate king. Church, this is amazing. Jesus achieving his kingdom this clash of styles, not like every other leader with oppression and war and, and subjugating people. Jesus achieves his kingdom through humility, through compassion, through love, sacrifice. As we talked about a couple of weeks ago, the true judge, the true judge is also our sacrifice. He's also our righteousness. He's our advocate. That takes humility to get off the judge's chair and say, I will wear your penalty. His people. He wins the allegiance of his people, not by oppression, not by subjugation, but by invitation. He doesn't say to you, you're my subject, bow at my feet, kiss my toes. No, he says, come, come into relationship with me. I've opened the door. Come with me. This is our king. This is our emperor. The third clash, though, with this Emperor Augustus, not just of title, not just of style, but of Gospels. We read that inscription earlier, the beginning of good news. That literally means the Gospel. These Romans were believing they had a Gospel, the good news of the Emperor. What was his good news? Well, he would bring about peace. 
Now, how does he bring about peace? Through war. Peace is won through conquest, whether we like it or not. The world system, you know, there was the hippie movement. Yeah, I get all that. But in, in history, this is what happened. They went to war or they suppressed rebellions within the empire. That's how peace is won. If you cast your mind back 100 years ago, I know none of us were there, but we know the story, the First World War came upon us or the Great War, it was called. Now, if you remember the tagline, this was the war that would end war. That worked out well. 20 years later, we had an even more cataclysmic war. But that's the world system. You bring about peace by subjugating and, and, and suppressing your enemy. But that's not how Jesus brings about peace. His gospel of peace is totally different. His peace is won through sacrifice. His peace is won because of his sacrificial love, not by the sword, but by the cross. This is the way that Jesus' gospel is so much better, so much more supreme. Now, as this word finally got out there through Jesus' life, death, resurrection, etc., and the first, you know, uh, beginning of the church are getting out there saying, hey, guys, there's another king on the scene, Rome doesn't take to that too well. I mean, you even think about the first Christmas when they hear there's a king on board, what do they do? They start killing off all the little babies. And certainly when the church was on the scene, they were persecuted. They were thrown in. You read the book of Acts. They were in and out of jail almost every day. It was just one of those things. They had to keep this under wraps. In Acts 17, we get a real insight into this. We see a lot of persecution through Acts, but I think this is a really clear uh, image. In Thessalonica, Paul is preaching the gospel. And what do they say? They say, these men are defying Caesar's decrees. You know, in other chapters of Acts, it's all about the God of that area or this or that. No, no, this is Caesar they're insulting, saying there is another king, one called Jesus. This is two decades after the first Easter. This is 20 years after Jesus has died and the Christians are being accused of treason. It's a big deal. Rome didn't take to it too well at Advent, nor at Easter or any time after that. And yet... This is the amazing thing. For all of the persecution that Rome threw, and we know way beyond the end of the Bible that this continued, the church just grew. The church couldn't be stopped. I mean, Jesus promised that. The gates of hell will not prevail against my church. And they couldn't, no matter what Rome threw at them. Rome killed off pretty well all of the disciples. The witness continued. The church exploded. When persecution came, they just scattered. There's estimations that there was about 10,000 Christians by about 100 AD in the Roman Empire. Two or 300 years later, they believed that was well into the millions, all over the Roman Empire. In fact, I think it's Acts 19, we read that all of the eastern part of the empire had heard about Jesus within a year of Paul arriving at Ephesus. Within a year. So much so that by the fourth century, now, you might remember Jesus caught a fish one day when he was asked to pay uh, he was asked, who is owed the money? Who's owed the taxes? And he says, let's catch a fish, bring me the fish, and there's a coin in the, fi- in the fish's mouth. Remember who his face was on that? Caesar. Render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. But by the fourth century, Caesar was no longer on the coins. They used to say, Caesar, son of God. They replaced that with Christ on the money. It's only a little thing. I'm not suggesting every Roman served Jesus. But by, not by the sword, 
not by trying to overthrow government, not through voting or impeachment or any of the things we talk about today, through just love and compassion and the humility and seeing lives changed and transformed. An empire was changed. And the gods of this age, as it were, were overthrown, so to speak, even in a subtle way. So you might hear all this this morning and think, okay, Andrew, that's great, but come on, this is a history lesson. What's going on? Caesar, what about us? What about today? What about now? Well, just park this thought for a minute. Seeing Jesus as our emperor should change everything that we do. Very hinted at that in the communion. As I said, she preached part of my message. Seeing Jesus as the emperor changes the way we think, the way we act, the way we speak, the way we spend our time. Just park that thought for a second. We may not face a Caesar wearing a toga. We may not face the kind of totalitarian society that the Roman Christians did, the Christians in the Roman Empire, early Israel, that kind of stuff. But let me tell you, this portrait of Jesus as king, as emperor, is no less important for you and for me today. It's no less important. The gospel remains subversive. It is countercultural in every single way. If you think it's countercultural today, boy, oh boy, it was countercultural then. Boy, you could have lost your head for saying Jesus is king and not the Caesar. When the gospel, the gospel calls us to see Christ and his kingdom as something that's eternal, something that is first, primary, the main thing. That means that every other culture, every other kingdom, every other thing in society is simply temporary. It's provisional. It's just, it's not, that's not it. There's more to it. John Dixon shares a great quote in his book, The Doubter's Guide to Jesus. It'll come up here. It says that seeing Christ as our emperor involves us doing the hardest thing of all. Now, what's that? That's to refuse to be a captive to our culture. I'll read that again. Seeing Christ as emperor involves us doing the hardest thing of all, refusing to be a captive to our culture, refusing to be a prisoner to your society, if you like. If we are honest about this, church, there's no man, woman, or child who hasn't had to face this. And all through history, not, this, is not, this is not a new phenomenon. This is something that every person has had to deal with. A clash of cultures. Are we going to serve Caesar or are we going to serve Christ? Funny thing, the lens of hindsight makes us feel a bit smug sometimes, doesn't it? So I think, geez, we would never do that. We would never do what they did. You think back to the Roman days of slavery and infanticide and all that. And, you know, that's, that's bad. That's terrible. Then you might get to the barbarians and think, oh, geez, they were so brutal, the way they treated women or whatever. You might get to the slavery days and think, man, that, how could they do that? I'm going to suggest to you the people living in those days probably didn't know what was going on probably didn't see the immorality of it. And here's why that's scary. There's quite likely things that we are involved in as a society today that our grandchildren and their grandchildren will say, I can't believe they did that in 2018. I can't believe they wrestled with that. And it could be any issue. And I'm telling you this because I don't know what those issues are going to be. Is it fossil fuel versus green fuel? Is it vaccines versus anti-vaccines? What is it? I don't know. It could be a number of things, but they, will, they could well look back on us and say the same thing we're saying about the Romans now. I can't believe they did that. They were captive to their culture. Tragedy is they may be as well. That's just the way it goes. 
But Christ culture calls us to rise above that, to step back from our culture, to step back from what is going on. But even more than that, even more than that, as I said, we're not in a totalitarian society, although you hear rumblings even in the West, you know, humanism is getting stronger by the day, even the rise of Islam or something like that, who knows, who knows. But at this point in time, we don't have to face that bow to Caesar or die kind of thing, right? So our Caesar is certainly not visible. But I want to suggest to you that we have a Caesar that might be invisible. We have an enemy that could well be more insidious. Because you know very clearly what you need to give your allegiance to Caesar or whatever. You can see that very clearly. But when something's invisible, it changes everything. It changes the way that we respond to that. The early church would likely have said, Caesar, like Jesus said, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's. I'll give you my taxes, Caesar. I will honor you civically, but I, I can't worship you. My God is Christ. My God is Jesus. I'm going to honor him. It's black and white. But I believe our Caesar is hidden. I'm going to suggest one possible candidate. Four-letter word, S-E-L-F. I believe self could well be the Caesar of our day or one of them. Because what does that involve? This is me, myself, and I putting myself first. Do you know our favorite radio station is? It's We FM, W-I-I-F-M. What's in it for me? Our favorite thing, that's marketing speak, but it's true. That's our favorite thing. It's all about me. What You talk to somebody, what's their favorite subject? What I did last week, the holiday I went on. I'm not saying that's wrong. That's just who we are. It's humanism, it's greed, it's materialism. If it feels good, I'm going to do it. If it blesses me, if it benefits me somehow, I'll do it. And see, self is insidious because it's invisible. You can convince yourself into thinking you're doing the right thing, but the reality is you may not be. Now, I'm not going to try and spell that out for you. That's an issue of conscience. But it's more dangerous spiritually because we don't always pick it up. It's under the radar, as it were. I'm suggesting to you that selfishness could well be today's Caesar for us in the West. And that's, that's the question is still being asked to us. Are you going to choose Caesar or are you going to choose Jesus? See, if I'm a citizen of Australia, which I am, I was born here, when I visit other countries, that's got to be in the back of my mind. I go to, we recently went to America and, you know, had a great time over there, but I can't put my roots too deep into America. I can't think, yeah, I'm going to buy this and buy that and maybe buy a house or whatever. No, I can't do that. I'm a pilgrim passing through. And here's the other thing. If I ever get into trouble in America, they're not going to help me. I need to call on my passport, call on the Australian government to help me. And you, you, you understand how that works. We can't put our roots too deep down when we're on holidays. Our allegiance is not to that country. It's to Australia or wherever your passport is held. We're traveling through. We travel lightly when we're on holidays, right? That's what we do. We are pilgrims passing through. I want to tell you, it's the same in the spirit. We are here for a season. And it's, and it's harder because our season is a long time on this earth. 70 years, 18 years, whoever knows what it might be. But it's a long time. And it's easy for us to fall back into that trap of just putting our roots down into this culture but yet the Bible tells us our lives are like a tent. We could be wrapped up and moved on. 
traveling lightly. Paul says, we are citizens of heaven. And I want to tell you that principle still applies here, all the more, all the more in the spiritual. Because as we talked about this gospel of peace that Jesus brings, the gospel of peace is not peace that is an earthly throne. It's the throne of our hearts that's the issue. Because when Christ becomes the center of the throne of our heart, we will experience that peace. We will become citizens of heaven. But guess what? Our choices then need to reflect that. Not getting too caught up in the cares of this life. Yes, yes, we've got to live, we've got to eat, we've got to do all these kind of things. Don't misread that. I don't want you all starving over the next month. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is, what are our choices? What are we doing with our life? What are we doing with our resources? Is our allegiance actually to the Caesar of self? Or is it to Jesus? Is it to Christ? And Paul saying this as well, I think is reminding us, because the Romans would have known, being a citizen gets you certain benefits. You get to live under the Roman peace. You get protected if there's ever a problem. Just throw your allegiance onto the Caesar. But in the same way, Paul is saying, give your complete worship to Jesus and see what his peace is like. Not a peace that is won by war. Not a peace that is maybe fragile. A peace that's eternal. A peace that's in our hearts because we have peace with Jesus. God has made restitution on our behalf. And as if that's not enough. Remember that contrast with Augustus, this high up king and the lowly peasants? That's not Jesus. Jesus calls us into intimacy with him. He says, hey, I've saved you, now be my subjects. No, he said, I've saved you. I call you friend. I call you brother, sister. You are mine. And so our complete worship then brings us to a point where nothing is off limits for God. Everything in my life needs to come under that microscope. My work, my vocation, my family life, finances, what I do with my time, what I do with my money, whatever it might be, all of these things need to be surrendered to Him. He's either Lord of all or He's not Lord at all. You know, if you were in a war situation and you surrendered and you said, yeah, but don't take my grenade or my, my, my rifle, you'll get your head blown off. It's surrendering. You're giving up. And that's what God wants, not in a forceful way. Because what's the reward? Peace, intimacy, relationship, eternal life. Come on, we could list the blessings all day. It's worth giving up for. He's worth it. So as I bring this to a close, we, bring it, we find that we are brought to this same intersection, church. Are we going to choose Caesar or are we going to choose Christ? And if we, if Jesus is truly the emperor of our lives, if he's truly on the throne of our hearts, then we know that his empire is one that won't end. His empire is everlasting. And if his empire is everlasting, he is worthy of it all because we have so much to gain. We have so much to, be, to know God. We have so much reward just in that. This is all worth giving up for. So as we close, let's just pray. I invite you to bow your head. and This is not the easiest thing for, it's not been the easiest thing for me to say this morning because it convicts me as well. I know there are areas in my life that God wants more control over. And I'm sure if you're honest, you would probably say the same. 
Father, we just we just thank you for your grace this morning, Lord God. Lord, we thank you that even as you convict us, Lord, you never do it with a sledgehammer. You always do it with love. You always do it with an embrace. Lord, that loving father who disciplines their child with just not with a motivation except to make us better, more like you. God, we thank you for the humility that you showed through your son, Jesus. We thank you the way that he came, the way that he died, the way that he lived, everything that he did, Lord, was to please you. And everything that he did was the example for us, Lord, that we might walk humbly on this earth, that we might not be too attached to the culture of our day, that we might not be too attached to the possessions that we have. Lord, that we would simply just see you as the emperor of our souls, Lord God. We would see you as the true king, the true God of true God. Lord, in this Advent season, God, I pray for your people, for all of us, that, Lord, we would have a fresh desire for intimacy with you, Lord God, a fresh love and, and, and awe and worship for all that you are, all that you achieved, Lord God, Lord, for saving us. Lord, let us not get too blasé about this, God. We were bound for hell. You pulled us off the road, Lord, and you've just set us upon a path, Lord God. You've put firm ground under our feet, Lord. It's not miry clay anymore, Lord God. Lord, I just ask, Lord, for your people this morning. We, Lord, we, we identify, <clears throat> as your spirit leads, Lord, areas that you want to regain control of us, Lord God. And Lord, again, you never do this in a forceful way but you do it in just, it's an invitation to love, Lord God. Help us to see that, God. Giving up the things of this earth, Lord, is never for compulsion, Lord God. It's an invitation to something greater that you will do. Lord God, help us to see that. Help me to see that. Help us as a church, Lord, to just long to have you at the center of our hearts always, Lord God, and to be yielding more and more to you, Lord, as the days go by. God, help us to just have you as our focus, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you have just, you have prepared the way, Lord God. You have prepared the way. Thank you for coming and dying and rising again and giving us a new hope and a new future, Lord. Lord, we just pray your blessing upon your people at this Christmas season, Lord. Again, Lord, let us not lose you in the detail, Lord God. Lord God, this season is about so many things, but primarily it is you. It is your gift. You are the greatest gift of all. So Jesus, let us long for you this season. In your precious name, amen. Church, God bless.